following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good morning, Cornerstone. I was actually expecting it to be pretty slim pickings this morning, but uh, it's not that way, which is good. I was expecting it so much so uh, that I even had here in my notes, in my introduction, to make some comment about the fact that when there are very few of us, uh, we want to think that we're the few, the faithful, or the remnant, and yet we can't help but think about the fact that maybe we're the outcasts and everybody else has found something more enjoyable to do and we're wondering, what, what is it that they're all involved in? I had that written in my notes, but I will not tell it now because that is not the case. Um, it's good to have you, it's good to have those of you that are visiting with us um, as well, whether you're local and new to Cornerstone or um, you have been here before and our family, extended family of those in our midst, we're glad that we can have this time together. Uh, we take these opportunities to join up at the end of the year when we know that there is going to be a good amount gone doing other things. Uh, to come together as one and just to do things a little bit differently, have some time as a family together. Um, so uh, thank you, parents, for bearing with us in that when we want to have um, as many as possible in here. Um, I know the, the outcast thing maybe can feel a little bit more like that when you come in and you realize that childcare is at half-mast and uh, the pastors pulled the third line out to take care of the sermon. But we are here and we look forward to these next few minutes together. Um, I hope your week uh, was good. I hope your week uh, in the midst of Christmas time included some time to rest, to enjoy some different routines, maybe, maybe no routines at all, which is nice. Uh, Well-spent visits with family or friends, family that are friends, hopefully. Good food, maybe some time to look back at the year, maybe some laughter. I hope that was the case to some extent, but maybe your week was not like any of that. Maybe it was very ordinary. Maybe it was kind of ho-hum. Maybe it was even a little disappointing or different than what you were expecting last Sunday at this time. Whatever it is, we now find ourselves together on the great equalizer of days, right? December 29th, one of the days in that strange desert that's the annual week between the already of Christmas and the not yet of the new year. Um, it's the time where all the realities of life under the sun come slowly pushing their way back into the tinsely idealism of that most wonderful time of the year. And it's a little bit like the deflation of a balloon, right, with a slow squeal as it deflates. And we're back to reality. We realize again that what nostalgia and shrewd marketing and the dysfunctional desires of our own hearts offer us can't keep their promises, and, and so it's like a whole week of real-life application to Chris's sermons the last couple of Sundays, and here's where we find ourselves. And in that sense, I am thankful for this week, and I hope that whatever your experience is this past week, um, whatever you're feeling now, it is priming you and priming us for the simple time together in the Word. Simple, but I think necessary. Um, Admonitions and reminders what I'd like to talk about for a few minutes this morning. So I'm going to read our text. We're going to be in Colossians 1. I'll read our text and pray, and then I'll let you in on what the plan is for the next few minutes, and then we will get to it. So if you would follow along with me in your scriptures, I'm going to read verses 24 through 29 of Colossians 1. <clears throat> Now I rejoice, this is Paul speaking, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him, that is Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy 
that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Spirit, in this time, give us ears to hear so that our hearts are further transformed, our minds are further renewed, and our actions are further conformed into the ways of our Savior Jesus. May the realities of the gospel and our union with Christ be the basis for all the exhortation that is to come in these coming minutes. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So to many, this is a familiar passage. Um, And this morning, I want to take time to consider Paul's mission that he states in these verses. Indeed, the, the very purpose and theme that we've given to Cornerstone is what he claims here, proclaiming Christ so that we can present everyone mature in him. Please understand, though, that this isn't intended to be like a a cop-out message because uh, it's an easy drum to beat on a December 29th type Sunday. Um, And because of this, I hope you don't um, check out either because you feel it's a tired or an overused motto or a passage we go to over and over again, and you're just going to get more of what you've ever already heard scores of times from the pastors um, for years. I hope that's not the case. This is um, the setting where I just thought it would be good to spend a few minutes in Paul's words here in the text and then to draw them out in a few very practical pastoral ways, um, to do that in a few different ways. Uh, I know that you cannot do justice to a mission statement like this and a purpose statement as a church in one time together. So we're not trying to do that. Um, It wouldn't even be good to attempt that. But we want to consider instead um, this exhortation from Paul and to see it as just another exhortation along our own pilgrimage. Yet I hope it has ramifications as we end a year, as we start a new year. I hope it has ramifications that continue as we continue to build on our journey as well. Um, Whether you're a part of Cornerstone or whether you're visiting, um, I believe these things will be good for us. So my reason for this is twofold. So first of all, it's always good to be reminded of purpose, right? Uh, mission drift is a constant problem, whether that be um, in our own hearts as individuals, um, in our family, um, in uh, the place in which we work, or yes, or church as well. Mission drift is a perennial problem, and so it's important to stay on course. Those of you who spend time in the gym, or those of you like me who read about it on a blog one time, know that the fitness of one's core muscles is paramount. You can't make them the focus of just one month, right, and work hard on your core muscles for one month and then move on to other muscle groups forever after that. No, the core muscles have to be a focus and a consistent part of one's exercise regimen because one can't be fit and healthy without the core muscles being healthy. So then my first reason is that we, as the body of Christ, continue to grow up in Christ and exercise our God-given purposes It's right that we focus on core truths. It's right that we ensure that our overall trajectory is in alignment with our identity and purpose. Second, and this spins out of the first purpose, comes my concern, maybe others' concern too. My concern is that we tend to grow numb to things that we either feel we can assume or we feel we already have them figured out. I'm realizing more and more in my own walk, uh, in my own understanding of the scripture, and more years given to the work of pastoring, more years of work given to being a father and husband, that all of us, to one degree or another, have misunderstandings of what the story of God even is, and what this Christian life thing is all about. We've grown up in a culture that says God is dead, humanity had a chance origination, and therefore there's no objective purpose, no objective goals that we have as humans, and that our desires, whatever they might be, are truth for us as individuals, and they should have the dignity to be exercised for our ultimate enjoyment. We've grown up in that cultural setting. We've grown up in a church culture, or maybe if you haven't grown up in a church culture, you've grown up in a society that presents church culture in a certain way, right? And you've seen it from the outside, but a church culture that, with every passing generation, seems to become increasingly biblically illiterate, highly individualistic, 
and a church culture that too often is tossed to and fro by whatever is trending in our greater society. And so because of this, my concern is that when we throw around a phrase here that we have in Paul, that his desire is to make all people mature in Christ, or um, that's the translation that I read out of, other translations, complete or perfect in Christ, that when 200 people hear that phrase, there's 120 different interpretations of it, of what we might think it means. We assume that it captures everyone's understanding and imagination in the exact same way. But we realize maybe that this isn't the case. It's like the experience my wife had uh, during her first job. Uh, back in our first year of marriage, she'd been getting to know a colleague um, who was a young single mom. She was weighed down by her own life experiences, her upbringing, difficulties there. She was weighed down by a poor string of life choices. She was weighed down by a feeling of hopelessness. And so in the midst of conversations that Sue was having with her, uh, they decided to read a little book together and to talk about it over lunch. Sue was uh, excited about this, and so the first time they sat down in the break room uh, to talk about this little book, the woman excitedly turned to a page and read the C.S. Lewis quote that you no doubt have heard before. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You can just imagine Sue's like, oh, she's like giddy with excitement, trying to hold it in. She's thinking like, this girl's going to get saved before we go back to our desks after lunch. And the woman said, man, I totally get this. I mean, I've often thought that aliens are probably a real thing. <clears throat> now, I don't think we're at the level of talking about maturity in Christ as if like we're saying it and you're receiving like, oh yeah, Area 51, yeah, yeah. I don't think we're probably at that level but I think it is important to make sure we are at least playing in the same ball field and that when we are united and covenant together as a body of Christ and as cornerstone, uh, that we understand what we are saying with our purpose and the trajectory that we are on. So um, again, let's talk a bit about this trajectory um, and really what is the goal of our humanness, right? This is maturity in Christ. Or as you'll hear me say um, a few more times this morning, completeness, perfection in Christ, or wholeness in Christ, and we'll talk about that. Explain a little bit why. Let's say that. What does it mean to be mature in Christ? What does it mean to be made whole in him? Why is this so important to Paul? So we'll take a couple minutes to go through the text that we just read. And the desire is to paint a picture of biblical wholeness then out of that, to step out of it, to see the bigger picture of the trajectory of scripture that is no doubt in Paul's mind as he pens these words. And then to just, um, in a kind of like a family talk type way, bring out some practical applications um, to have us continuing down uh, this journey of discipleship. So I said I wanna paint a picture of that, to use that analogy of painting a picture as we go into this, maybe some of us are essentially starting with a blank canvas, and we are new to all of this talk of the gospel, of union with Christ, of what it means to uh, live in light of our salvation, what is the salvation thing for. And so you're painting um, on a blank canvas almost, and so um, you're needing to be filled with the truth of God's word Maybe some of us have pictures that are kind of in grayscale because we've kind of assumed some things or gotten tired maybe of what we feel is well-worn, what are well-worn messages. And so we again need to have the beauty of the story of God come in with some color and paint that grayscale painting. Maybe some of us have pictures that need to have the eraser of God's word come to that picture and erase some things that we thought were finished and we thought were right. And instead, it needs to be erased uh, and painted in again with correct techniques and truth and maneuvers. And so that's all I want to do with these next few minutes is walk through some of these things and point out some things. And hopefully, we all walk out of here again, not encouraged by simple words, but encouraged with the goodness and grace of God, encouraged by the gospel of his kingdom coming, and come, and coming in fullness. 
I want us to leave um, not just with some facts, not just with some truths that we tuck back in our pockets, and if we are asked what our beliefs are, we can pull those out as a statement of faith, but it actually is a reality in which we live. It is the story that we are caught up in, and we are excited about it. So let's look at Colossians 1, 24 through 29, and just kind of walk through what Paul is talking about here um, and make some comments and get a little insight on it. Paul has spent the first part of chapter one um, delighting in aspects of the gospel. He's delighting in the fact that Christ has come. He's the image of the invisible God. He has been made known to us. God has been made known to us through the work of Christ. We were once people that were alienated. Uh, That's kind of a Interesting in light of the story I told, right? Um, We were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but we have now been reconciled in Christ's body of flesh by his death. And so he has spent already in his opening words time uh, rejoicing in the gospel and calling the Colossians to rejoice again in the gospel. He's writing in prison, and we come to verse 24, And he says, now, not just now that he's in prison, but now just because of the truths of the gospel, he has a whole new way of looking at things. Now, because of the gospel, he rejoices in his sufferings for the sake of the Colossian believers. If that's not a change of heart, a change of understanding, or looking at things differently, then I don't know what is. He is rejoicing in sufferings, when at one time, he was causing suffering and persecution to Christians. Now, in this ministry, he says, as he rejoices in his sufferings, he is in his flesh filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me for you to make known the word of God, to make it fully known. That is um, indeed a strange phrase, right? Because we immediately read it and say, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? What could be missing yet from the work of Christ? Has he not just taken time to talk through the wonderful work of Christ where we have the Son of God, the God-man now seated at the right hand of the Father and he holds all of creation in his hands. He makes every moment continue and to consist in him. What could be lacking in Christ's afflictions? This is uh, the content of a whole message in and of itself, but help us to help us simply understand it and to quickly understand it. Remember that Paul has already talked about the fact that his union with Christ hits all aspects of Christ's life. He talks about the fact that he has died with Christ. He has been buried with Christ. He has risen to new life in Christ that all the things that happened to Christ and the work of Christ is now through the work of the Spirit and the gospel of grace applied to Paul himself. Another aspect of Christ's life is, of course, the fact that he suffered, right? Not just uh, in the atoning work, but certainly and mostly in his atoning work, but in the midst of a life where he was announcing the gospel of the kingdom, Christ suffered in various ways. He went without. He was rebuked and scorned by the people he grew up with. Those who had received the promises of God, Israel, in the Old Testament, um, were the ones that rejected him, the cornerstone. And so in various ways, Christ suffered in his life and death. And so in this way, Paul is simply saying that his life now in Christ, in union with Christ, experiences the same things that Christ went through to some extent. He now is united to Christ's sufferings as well as his death, burial, and resurrection. In another way, too, we can look at it and understand that Christ, our Savior, our head, our chief shepherd, continues to suffer with us, his church. Consider when Paul met Jesus on the road and was converted, 
If you turn to uh, that story in Acts, Jesus says, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you persecuting me? And so in that way, Jesus and his union with his people, the church, continues to experience, in a sense, the suffering. He walks it with us because he is present and indwelling us with the Spirit. And so in this way, as Paul ministers, as Paul continues his mission that he had been given that day and that um, experience with Jesus, he continues to now walk and experience suffering. In this way, then, the purposes of God and the work of Christ continue to play out. It's something where um, this is not just a one-and-done thing, but Christ continues to serve his people and minister to his people. And that connection is so real that we can say that we share in the sufferings of Christ and him in our sufferings. So at that time, Paul became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to him for the sake of these people, the Colossians, for us a couple thousand years later sitting here reading this for our sake as well. He became a minister, he was given a stewardship, and this is playing out now as he ministers to the Colossians. Part of that stewardship, or you could say the essence of that stewardship, is to make the word of God fully known. He was given the task, stewardship, of declaring the word of God and make it, making it fully known. In the midst of all that was the declaration of the gospel, the declaration that there was a hidden mystery in times and ages past, and it was now revealed to his saints. And so in the midst of that story, in the midst of that period of time, Christ saves Paul so that he would be a minister of this word, of this story, of this reality, that this mystery, not this queer type thing that um, cannot be figured out, but a mystery in the sense that something that was, was hidden in ways, that was not seen in its fullness, was playing out in a somewhat hidden way behind the scenes, and yet everything in history was driving to the moment when that mystery would be revealed. And that hiddenness would be brought into the light. We've talked about this the last couple weeks even. This moment of the incarnation where what had been revealed in the Old Testament was brought to fruition in the person and work of Jesus in the incarnation. And to this reality, Paul has now been given the task to declare it and to make it known. To them, that is God's people, his saints in verse 26, to them, God has made known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Part of this um, revealing of the mystery is that though God has worked specifically with a distinct people through generations, through centuries, he has been doing it all so that the light of the glory of the gospel that union with Christ would be a reality and experience for people of all tribes, tongues, and nations. Those that were not Jews, but all the nations, the Gentiles, that they would be made known to them. And they would know and experience the riches of this glory. And again, he speaks of this Christ in you. He speaks of the essence of the gospel, is that we are united to Christ in his work. So because of this, Paul then says, because of these realities, we speak Christ. We proclaim Christ. It's pretty simple, really. Though on one level it's cosmic in scope, at another level we proclaim simple truth that Christ is everything that we need, that he is the culmination of this mystery, that Christ in us it's the hope of glory and is what all the nations need. And so he proclaims Christ. How does he do this? He warns and he teaches everyone with all wisdom. He speaks here of this idea of, of warning and teaching. 
the idea is of something not right, maybe an understanding that's not right or a, a situation that's not right. There's a distortion that is playing out. And his work is to fix it by admonishing, by warning, set things right again, by teaching. And so this work to proclaim Christ through admonition or warning or teaching comes not in earthly wisdom, but he says it comes with all wisdom, though. This is not earthly wisdom. As we know in other passages, he speaks of the fact that he wasn't eloquent, he came with simple truths, that these things were received by the weak and the lowly. This was not um, him coming in with pedigree and intellect. Rather, he said all of that is worthless and hopeless, but it was about Christ and the realities of the gospel. And it is the wisdom of God and from God that he is using as the basis of his warning and teaching and proclaiming Christ. Now, what is the goal of this? What is the goal of this proclamation? He does all of this, whether it be warning and teaching, whether it be speaking and revealing the mysteries of the gospel now seen in Christ and making much of our union with Christ, whether it be all the way back to the idea of him suffering and having to go through difficulties in order to do this, all of it happens because his desire and the goal of his, his, his mission is to see and to present everyone mature in Christ. He says that he toils for this. This is work. He gives himself for this. And if you read through Acts and read Paul's resume, you know that he's not joking or throwing this out lightly. His ministry was one of true difficulty. And yet it was not his wisdom and it was not earthly wisdom that he brought. It was godly wisdom. It was not ultimately his energy or his power, anything that brought about maturity in Christ or even caused him to do the toiling that gave him the strength to, through difficulty, preach this message. But it was the energy that Christ gave through his spirit that he powerfully worked in his servant, Paul. And so we have here Paul in the midst of one of many of his New Testament letters tell the believers that are reading this that he is a minister of the gospel and that he has been utterly changed and transformed by the power of that gospel. And that his mission, his focus in life is to make Christ known and the goal in that is to see everyone made mature in Christ. This everyone most directly speaks of these Colossian believers, those that have been saved, but also can speak to everyone that will likewise be converted, like the Colossian believers, and everyone that Paul would have the opportunity to speak with. So this maturity in Christ, what is this? Well, in a way, we need to go to all of scripture to play that out because this is not just a passing comment that Paul says. Paul does not have the mentality of like, okay, how do I finish this out? Let me just state something real quick and move on. Paul's not sitting there thinking like, oh, whoa, this is, this is really good. I like this. I might even get this put on a t-shirt someday. This will make, uh, this will really do wonders to my, to my ministry. But Paul, steeped as he is in the story of God and the Old Testament scriptures, is declaring that his mission is not even a new mission or a different mission, but he is finding himself in the continuing mission of God that has been playing out through all of human history. And so he is really summing up a whole massive theme or series of themes as he speaks this out. And like I said at the beginning, we don't have time to do justice to this at all. And so what I want to do is quickly highlight a couple of things as we step back and use simple frameworks of the story of God to get a, a little bit more of a glimpse of what Paul is getting at here. So let me walk you through a couple aspects of this idea of maturity, completeness, or wholeness. The first setting or tier of this big story, of course, is creation. And God creates just as he intended 
And he declares that all of that creation is very good. He is more than satisfied with that creation. That creation images him as a reflection of his love and desires. And in the midst of that creation comes human, kind, man and woman, expressly made in his image and having the breath of God breathed into them to animate them. And all is good. And the story begins that way. But we know, at least as we read scriptures and we read Genesis 1, 1, 2, and 3, we know that that part of the story um, has another element brought into it pretty quickly, right? So in the midst of this very good creation that satisfies God and that he delights in, of course, comes the fall, comes sin, comes the serpent deceiving with uh, the realities that you are living in, Adam and Eve, are not true. God is hiding something from you. He thinks it's very good, but he's hiding something from you. And it can be much better for you if you would only listen to me and believe what I tell you. And so Satan comes in and does not come in as a second creator, but he comes in as a distorter of truth. He comes in as a deceiver, a teller of lies. And through his conniving work, he causes Adam and Eve to not love and obey and trust and walk in faithfulness to their maker, but instead believe truly that he has deceived them in a way and things can be better for them if they listen to the serpent. And so in the midst of a good creation comes a distortion of everything good. Remember, it's not a whole new creation. It's not a second type of creation. Satan cannot create, but he can certainly wreak havoc and rebellion on what God has created. And so we have now, just in these first two aspects of the story, and in the first two aspects of just a short amount of the story, we have people that have the essence of wholeness. They are, um, they are complete in how God made them. They have now walked away from that. And so there is a, a breaking and a dividing. What used to have integrity, right? When we use that term integrity, what used to have integrity, it was good in every way, now lacks integrity. There is nothing congruent about humanity anymore, but they are misguided and broken and all things are distorted. We read then, in the goodness and love and kindness of God to promise that he would make things right, we read through what seems like mountains of material, much of it confusing, and we read through um, story after story and a piece of history after a piece of history of both the good of creation and the bad of the fall warring against one another. In the midst of this, we see all too clearly that this wholeness of humanity is an absolute wreck. Not only are we in pieces, so to speak, but we go directly against the goodness of God and his plans, and we take even the good gifts and the things that he gave and use them for our own. Uh, The story of Babel is kind of like a mountaintop illustration of that early on, that uh, as God called Adam and Eve to steward things well and to enculturate, to make culture, indeed their descendants do that, but not for the glory of God. Instead, they do it for the glory of themselves to make much of themselves. But in the midst of what seems like a hopeless reality, we start to see the work of God in the midst of people. And as we are introduced to Noah in Genesis 6, after that, as we are introduced to Abraham, the one in which God would make his covenant to save a people for himself, we see that these are people that are called blameless. How can there be blamelessness in the midst of this catastrophe? Well, in the midst of the catastrophe, There are people who, because of the goodness and grace of God and because of his initiative, 
are wholeheartedly devoted to God and his ways and all the ways that they can know of him. This does not mean that they are flawless. This does not mean that they are perfect. But it means that in the midst of lots of pagan stories and realities that they are living in, functioning in, they hear the word of God and they devote themselves to him. And God works in them and then uses them to bring pictures of hope in the midst of chaos, to bring reminders that he will keep his promises. So again, we play this out through the Old Testament, or it is played out through the Old Testament, and we come and we see now redemption and the reconciling work of Jesus, that he comes and he keeps the promises of the Old Testament, and he comes to make things right. Another high-level mountaintop literally moment is Jesus on the mount. Matthew records for us in Matthew 5 through 7 where Jesus says that his breaking into realities of a broken world, his kingdom coming into the midst of that means that truth is really starting to to pour in through him. And his definition of what is good and right is very much the opposite of what the world says is good and right. And yet he calls people to trust in him and to follow him And he says that in the midst of this, or as they do this, both the gift of God and the task at hand is for them to look like God. He says that they are to be perfect, like God is perfect. We know that verse well in Matthew 5. This is one of the first times we see the idea of blamelessness, the idea of holiness, the idea of wholehearted love and devotion to God, break into the New Testament and its language and speak of completeness. God himself, the very definition of God is that he is integral, that he is whole. And we then, as kingdom citizens, disciples of Christ, are called to image that wholeness and let it play out. We are starting to see that through the redemption of Christ, things are restored And that God's good intent for his creation uh, begins to play out again. And so now through the work of Christ and the redemption that we have in him, we have restoration, we have wholeness, because of, again, our union with him. This aspect of our union to Christ's work, his finished work that we have seen him expound on in Colossians 1. And as we read his other letters, we see him speak to a lot. And so when Paul comes here and pens that he is working and toiling to teach everyone with all wisdom so that everyone would be made mature or whole in Christ, he is talking about being caught up into the story of God, the work of Christ to redeem. He is talking about the fact that the goal of the gospel is to take a broken, sinful, rebellious humanity to buy them back and in buying them back to breathe new spiritual life in them and then in breathing new spiritual life in them to see all that they are start to image the creator God that we would be made whole in every way. This is the goal of our humanness because we understand now that we have The end of the story, too, this consummation, that when Christ's kingdom comes in its fullness at his return, we will indeed be whole in every way. So Paul works for these things. Quickly, a couple of simple applications then on just a reminder of the bigger picture of the story of God. I think we tend to continue uh, to walk in different ways um, as people that are not whole but are as divided. We again have been taught, whether in society or around us, or even sometimes in the way we as a church speak of the story of God, we think of ourselves in different 
facets, right? We think of, well, okay, yeah, I'm in a body, but I have a soul. And we tend to walk in a story that says that the goal of history is for this body that's subjected to the curse will die and it will return to dust and it will be done. And in the meantime, our soul or the spiritual aspect of who we are will continue to be made more alive and more alive until it is taken from this body and is in the presence of God, and there we will stay for all of eternity. And so we compartmentalize our very humanness. I want us to remember as we continue as a church to pursue what it means to be made whole in Christ and to see one another made whole in Christ, that the story of Scripture is not one of us becoming less human, but one of us being restored to true humanity. And that story culminates in the very same resurrection that Christ has already experienced. That resurrection will be true of us as well. Too often, we forget either the story of creation or we forget the story of the fall. And we don't make enough of one or the other or maybe both of those sometimes. But in the work of Christ, we are reminded both that the fall is seriously bad and that God's creation and his intent for creation is immensely good. Christ did not come to speak a few good words to us and give us a pep talk and to encourage us to live better lives and to try harder. He came and fulfilled the law and a life lived without sin because we could not do that. Because the chasm between us and God was immense and irreparable apart from the God-man coming to restore. He came and lived life, as we often say, that we certainly couldn't live in and of ourselves. And our sin and rebellion and our belief in the lie was so bad that God himself gave of his life and suffered to atone for our rebellion and to make things right. That seriously speaks to our depravity. We didn't just need some self-help. We needed God himself to come and to give of himself to make things right. But consider this as well. At a specific moment in time, the second person of the Godhead took on flesh. And he, at this very moment, is sitting at the right hand of the Father in flesh. He did not come and deal with human form to get his work done and then get back to what he had been for all eternity. But do we realize that Christ and our eternity with him will be one of embodiment, will be one of humanness, that our very Savior, Jesus, has a body like us, and it is not a bad thing. Remember that the story is that Christ died and rose again and that for all eternity, he is a man. This is good news for us because it is the first fruits, as Paul says, it is the first fruits of the fact that we will one day rise again too. And when we rise, whether it means that we fall asleep, as Paul refers to it, before Christ comes again, or we are reunited and re resurrected our bodies at the, timing, at the coming of Christ. We will be made whole in every way, and we will have all eternity as people that are once again people of integrity. These things are good news, and we, again, don't have time to play out all the ways in which we tend to live or think or act because of either forgetting that we are an essentially... Um, we're an essential unit as humans. But it is important that we remember that God is making all things right and that we will be whole for all eternity. In the meantime, then, we are called to live in light of the gift. I'll close with this. The call to discipleship, the call to wholeness, is both a gift and a task I was thinking about this in several ways over the last couple of months and then reading even just very recently where the author used, um, used that well. I thought it was good. 
but our wholeness is both a gift and a task. We spent our morning before I came up here singing the realities of our life new because of the gospel, of the realities that our identity is hidden in God with Christ. This is the basis for um, our rejoicing. This is the basis for then the task of wholeness. Because the reality is we don't yet look like what God already declares us to be. We don't yet operate in ways uh, that reflect our new creation status. And so we're called to pursue wholeness. Paul uses tons of metaphors and illustrations of this. Maturity, of course, being one of them, to grow up into Christ. We're called to have the mind of Christ put on the mind of Christ. And then so in our desires, in our emotions, in our actions, in our thinking, in our wills, all aspects of our personhood were called to reflect Christ more and more. This is not a duty. This is not a task that a vindictive God gives to us, but it is a beautiful task to pursue who we were created to be. And so as we end a year and consider and look back on maybe what God has done, consider the joys and the hardships of discipleship, and as we look forward to a new year, as we look forward to times as a church family of talking about what it means to be a biblical community, when we look forward to digging into the book of Ephesians and even there seeing our identity and then the calls to action based on that identity, May we do so considering this mission that Paul had and considering that this mission is ours as well. Not just because we've decided years ago to take on this passage as our purpose, but as Greg read to us earlier, Paul pulls in all of Christ's people into his mission. He says to think a certain way in the first couple verses of chapter three. He says then to act in ways where we are putting to death the distortions of who we were apart from Christ. And he calls us to put on and to image Christ in all aspects of life. And this is individual, but it is also corporate. This is individual for our individual communion with God, but it is also corporate for us as a body. And he admonishes them to let the word of Christ dwell richly in them. And notice that he says, how is this done? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Does that sound familiar to you? This is almost a verbatim repetition of what he said his mission was in verse 28. The same words, admonishing and teaching in all wisdom. And he plays that out in some of the aspects of what the corporate body does when they come together. Simple mention of having a pattern of singing together and speaking truth to one another. And then in word and deed, doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our task as individuals and as a church for the life of the world is no different than what Paul's was because, again, it's the same story. He was caught up into the same thing that we are. And so, in a very simple way, very simple few minutes together, I want us to be exhorted to keep mining the depths of what this is, to keep pursuing wholeness, and to be in God's word and living in light of God's word so that we understand more and more what it means to be made whole. And that we would do it in joy. That we would do it because this is the story of God making all things right. And he has begun to do that in Christ. In the end of his letter to the Thessalonians, he has a doxology of sorts and he again states what he's praying for, for the Thessalonians. I've been reading through this letter the last few weeks. It has been 
a real joy, a challenge, an encouragement. But get this as he sums up what he has tackled in his letter to the Thessalonians. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. This is full maturity. This is wholeness. May he sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body. This is aspects of all that we are as humans. He's not trying to like say, okay, there's a piece of you that's spirit. There's a piece of you that's soul. There's a piece of you that's body. Da, da, da. He's using these words in a way to sum up our personhood. He wants us in totality to be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a desire that he knows is not an empty desire because he knows that is the energy of Christ himself and these people's union with Christ that will cause complete sanctification. He says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so in the midst of that promise, in the midst of that reality, he desires to see wholeness play out in them then, now. Desires to see it play out in us now, tomorrow, the next day. May we desire that too. May we be wholly devoted to God and his work. May the first and second commandments that we entered into, man, a year and a half ago now, um, as we started considering the book of James, may that commandment to love the Lord our God, not just with some different pieces of us, but with our whole being. May we commune with him in every way. And as that happens, May it change us in every way. May all of our lives then reflect God's work to spend the rest of our lives making us whole. And may that be our desire. May that be the task we put ourselves to in the midst of all that he's given us to steward for his glory. Let's pray. God, I can't help us comprehend these things Spirit is you alone that can take feeble, incomplete words and play them out in our minds and hearts. So, so may you do that. And may you give us um, desires and imaginations for what you have done and are doing and what you will do in a new year, but also in us as a church, however, or whatever time you give us. May we do so with hope and with the joy that is set before us just like it was set before Christ to know that you are making all things new, to know that we will be made whole, to know that you will be ever present with us. God, work these things out in us in many practical ways in the days and weeks ahead. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen.